Welcome to the Gutenberg Podcast, where we discuss the books and ideas which have influenced Western civilization through the curriculum of Gutenberg College. This week, I have Naomi Reinhold back with me to talk about David Hume and his inquiry concerning human understanding. Welcome, Naomi. Hey, you. So... As we usually do at this point in the podcast, let's talk a little bit about Hume's life and times and get what information we might need to talk about his project and new inquiry and other things that we might want to talk about as we're thinking about Hume's major philosophical ideas. Sounds like a plan. He's part of the Scottish Enlightenment, so obviously that makes him a Scot. He grew up in a very Protestant, very Calvinist household and culture generally. And he was a precocious young man, precocious kid, really. Apparently, when his dad was sending his older brother to go off to school, they say college doesn't mean quite what we mean when we say college. It was usually something you started around 14, something like that. His older brother was that age, and his dad was like, young David here is 10. Yeah, he can just go too. <laughs> so he just sent them both along, right? And he got a classical education, learned his Greek and his Latin, and studied um, history and philosophy and all the old things that you read and all that good stuff. So smart kid, very educated, steeped in Scottish Protestantism, which is has its own flavor. And in the second half of his time at college got very interested in some philosophical questions and took a, a deep dive, I guess you could say. At least that's that was his way of thinking about what happened. He went in and explored stuff in, in his head, if you will, gave it a lot of thought and came out of the other end with a bunch of ideas. And he wrote it down and he produced this massive work, which gets called the on Human Nature. It was published over a period of time between 1739 and 1740. He started writing it, I think, when he was 23, and it was published, I think, four years later. So this is very definitely a early work, if you will, of three volumes. And he was really unhappy with the reception it got. He published it anonymously, but in this context, like anybody who read it knew who wrote it. That's just how that sort of thing worked. And some people responded to it, but his take was that it was terrible. It's stillborn, I think, is the word he used. Like, it just blah, it flopped. It was no good. And he attributed this lukewarm reception to the style. He decided that he hadn't written it in a way that was appealing to readers. It wasn't good enough for that reason. He, he thought the content was pretty good. But he was like, oh, I should have gotten an editor. I should have done another draft. I'm, I'm not sure exactly. He went ahead and read a lot of essays. I want to say like Addison and Steele, American essayists. Anyway, and was very interested in developing his writing style so that he could basically do it again, except this time get a better response was what he was going for. And that's where the inquiry concerning human understanding comes from. He pulled out some of the main ideas from the treatise of human nature, reworked them a little bit, reorganized them, polished the style, I assume. I haven't actually read a treatise on human nature, so I can't actually compare the style myself. But I assume that since that's what he was saying he was going to do, that he at least tried to do that. 
And he published an inquiry concerning human understanding, which is much shorter than the original treatise on human nature, one volume, a small volume, and he published that in 1748, so about 10 years after the first one. He published a number of other things in philosophy, but what he's really well known for is his history of England. And I know this is something that interests you. So in his own time, this was his most used and known and celebrated work. And it's interesting that he wrote one thing on history, and it was quite long, and it was quite large, and it was really well received. And then he went back and just dabbled in philosophy for the rest of it. Just that's he thought that was really interesting stuff. His history of England runs six volumes. Yeah, it's quite long, and it made him all of his wealth. Mm-hmm. And essentially, he was so successful with his history of England that he basically could live you know, lavishly, entertaining a lot of people for the rest of his life. Yeah. And he did hold down various sort of civic civil servant sorts of mm-hmm. jobs. He mm-hmm. was the secretary to the embassy in Paris and then in charge of it generally and various things like that. He tried to land a couple posts in universities, but in both cases was not accepted, probably because he had gotten himself the reputation of being an atheist and possibly some sort of nonconformist that people weren't real excited about hiring. Yes, I think it's at Aberdeen. I could be wrong. There's a chair of, I forget if it's called Ethical Studies or Moral Studies. I think it's Moral, yeah. And he, because he is, the term of the day is a skeptic, mm-hmm. because he was an avowed skeptic, he couldn't be given the post. And it was actually taken by a friend of his, most folks are also aware of, named Adam Smith, who wrote Wealth of Nations. Mm-hmm. Hume, after writing this very successful history, didn't need the university as a support system and was free to just do his own thing his six volume history of england was the touchstone work it's like the textbook for english history by some accounts for the next 100 years that sounds right fairly significant work and maybe we'll talk about some of the content of that as we talk about his legacy and big project significantly he dies in 1776 he dies on july 4th which makes it really easy for at least americans to remember Mm -hmm. and there was some hope by folks like samuel johnson because he was an avowed skeptic that there would be weeping and gnashing of teeth near the end of his life And apparently people were disappointed that he just went out. I believe he ended up having some kind of, I don't remember if it was stomach cancer or some kind of... Intestinal. Yeah, Yeah, he had an intestinal. Some kind of gut issue that was ultimately what killed him. But he managed to be cheerful despite apparently was excruciating pain near the end of his life. And he threw a huge party that was like his death party Mm -hmm. being like this is the last time as far as i can tell i'm gonna be healthy enough to hang out with all my friends so let's go out with a bang and people came and they had a big party and then you know he died a couple weeks later so yeah all right so that's sort of the man in his times and some of the surrounding things 
So let's turn to the inquiry and let's talk about some of the major themes that Hume is trying to talk about within this work. What is he concerned about? What is he trying to point out and so forth? Yeah, his one of the the main themes is in the title, The Nature of Human Understanding. And one might say that the theme is the limitations of human understanding, but that's a kind of comparative thing. What he's doing is trying to investigate what the nature of human understanding is, what the objects are, what it can grasp. And what he ends up doing is describing it in such a way that when compared to a lot of the other people who are on a similar project, looks very limiting. There aren't nearly as many things that human understanding can get a hold of as some of uh, his contemporaries and some of the people who come before him. This is a different kind of skepticism. He's skeptical about the powers of the human understanding. And so the shape that the book takes is him saying, look, what can we actually understand? Not this and not that. And you think you got this one, but nope, not that either. You have a different relationship to those things, but it's not understanding. One of the first limitations on human understanding is that all of our thoughts are limited by our direct experience with the world. He thinks that the two objects of human understanding are thoughts or ideas and what he calls impressions or perceptions, which is to say our immediate sensory experience, either of the external world or, if you will, of the internal world, things like emotions and whatnot. And ideas for him are always either memories or combinations of those simple impressions or perceptions. I'll call them perceptions, I think, just for the sake of simplicity. That may capture it better for us. I'm not entirely sure. We've talked about in the last couple of episodes of podcasts, looking at folks like Descartes, Mm -hmm. talking about the science curriculum in general. We've talked about that idea of impressions because the most straightforward philosopher is Locke believes that you're a blank slate. Mm Mm-hmm. Your mind isn't actively interacting with the world. The world is coming along and pressing a seal into wax, giving shape to your thoughts, Mm. is giving you the sort of basic tools that you're using to form things with. So you have light hits your, they wouldn't say retina, but light hits Mm -hmm. you and now you have this sort of thing that you have experience of that you're then using to interpret other things. And as you collect these different ideas, these different impressions, you can then better make distinctions about what your experience is as you're working through things. But if you didn't have those things, you wouldn't be able do it. And so that that idea of impression is really the thing that we have focused on in previous podcasts is the idea that your mind is passive Mm -hmm. in the process of interacting with the world. The world is imprinting your mind. And those are the things that you are using as you move forward with your understanding. Yeah. What's tricky with Hume, and this is more a matter of terminology than anything else, because he would, I think, agree that the mind is passive with regard to impressions and perceptions in that we don't control how our body interacts with the world as far as what we feel and see and hear, etc. But 
for him, the impression is not a lasting thing. It's only the immediate interaction with the world. At this very moment, what am I feeling or seeing? Right now, I'm looking across the room and seeing a curtain, and there's patterns and colors. I'm feeling the chair I'm sitting on. I'm hearing my own voice, which, you know, that's exciting. These are, but like right now at this instant, as it's happening, that's for Hume, the impressions or perceptions. As soon as it passes into the past, they become memories. And ideas are always in the past, if you will, which is to say they exist in the present as memories of the past. And it's easy to tell the difference between these. And we think, okay, that's fair, right? If I look at this curtain and then I go outside of the room and then I imagine the curtain and I have a picture in my head, it's pretty obvious the difference between actually seeing it and seeing it in my head is. I can tell the difference, not a big deal. He's going to use words like vivid and forceful. He's like Descartes in this, in his way of talking about these things. Descartes has this idea of ideas being clear and distinct mm-hmm. which i don't believe we talked about that when we were talking about chris but that's one of descartes criteria for deciding whether this is a believable idea is the more clear and distinct it is the more i'm forced by the clarity and distinctness of the idea to accept it as real yeah and for hume the criterion are the criteria are a little different but it's the same sort of i have some adjectives And I'm going to put them in front and that will tell me what category this falls into. Because for him, it's very much about feeling. And this is going to sound funny, but the way that you tell the difference between, for example, something you imagine versus something you believe or something you remember versus a perception you're having now, it's a feeling. These are attended by a feeling. It's not that we have two different ideas in the case of perception and idea literally we don't we have a perception which is not an idea and we have an idea but for him the way that human beings distinguish such things practically speaking is that we feel them differently which is a really an odd way of thinking about it from our perspective and from a lot of people's perspective at his time although interestingly enough it fits in with a pattern in the scottish enlightenment one of the things that Adam Smith writes is a book called A Theory of Moral Sentiments. Mm -hmm. And he was among, I don't know, half a dozen philosophers who postulated or came up with this moral theory based on feelings, based on sentiments. Some people are like, it's empathy. Some of it is. But there was a real tendency in that place and time to look to the sentiments, which is to say feelings, for things that now we want arguments for. It's the sort of thing, I feel like this is preserved somewhat in narrative tropes. You have the detective who says, but I feel it in my gut. The nerdy, know-it-all, forensic person has everything locked down to some kind of rigid argument. But the Mm -hmm. detective who's going to go out there and is actually going to solve the case, right, feels it in his gut. Yeah. So... It's not a totally unfamiliar sort of idea to us. I think going back to this idea of perception, I want to bring up an illustration of a modern way that we talk about some of the issues involved here. And Mm -hmm. then I want you to comment based on your understanding of Hume, how he would think about that or endorse it. So one of the issues that comes up 
in talking about perception is something like eyewitness testimony. And apparently, eyewitnesses are notoriously unreliable in their ability to remember what they perceived in the moment. Mm -hmm. And one of the issues that comes up is that there is a lot of the mind working on memory to make sense of it after the fact Mm -hmm. that we have, you know, sometimes people will talk about, we will create a narrative of all of those impressions. Mm -hmm. What did all of these things mean? Mm -hmm. And that will mean that we're more attending to the story that all of those details were housed in rather than the details themselves. And I think that has some relation that seems to be the sort of thing that Hume is observing is that my immediate experience is one thing, but it very quickly gets to a place where that can start to be manipulated or changed around Mm -hmm. and things like that. Do you think that's right? Yeah, I don't know that he thought that about memory himself. Sure. But if you told him about this, like he would have a way to talk about it, certainly. He thought that when we have ideas in our minds, we tend to associate them with each other in different ways. He says there's three basic ways that we associate our ideas with each other. One is resemblance, things that we associate ideas that seem similar in some way. One is contiguity, so the way one thing flows into another, one thing comes after another. And the other is cause and effect. We see two ideas, we have these ideas in our minds, and we say, ah, X causes Y kind of thing. And he explicitly says this with cause and effect and i think it's fair to carry it over to the other two as well that the way our minds do this is not under the control of our reason it's something we do more or less by instinct it's just a function of human nature that when we have ideas in our head and we pay any attention to them we associate them along these three lines and sometimes we do it intentionally but the way that they come together, which things have to do with each other, are purely a function of human nature and not a function of some sort of logical process that we go through. We don't necessarily connect these things logic. Things might just connect. We could almost say they connect themselves Mm -hmm. just because of how human beings connect things without us thinking about it or even having necessarily good reasons for it. Yeah, I would not be surprised if, I can't remember him actually saying this, but given the other things he says, I would not be surprised if he attributed a lot of our logical connection along these lines to a sort of rationalization of an instinctual connection of them. We see two things that are similar and we make assumptions about what that means we see one thing coming after another and we make assumptions about that what that means we see the same thing coming after we see this the x come after the y or we taste the bread and find it nourishes us a hundred times we make assumptions about what's going to happen next not because we sat down and went oh let's see can i demonstrate this with a logical proof but because we're wired that way although that's a very modern metaphor to be wired that way. But yes, because it is an instinctual thing that we do, something our minds do without us having to tell them to. And in fact, something our minds do that we can't stop them from doing. 
Okay, so you were saying earlier that Hume's concerned about limitations on human understanding, and we were just talking about how one of the limits around human understanding is our perception. Because of the nature of the kind of thing we are, we're limited to our thoughts and our perceptions. Mm-hmm. So what other things are limiting on human understanding in Hume's view? I suppose the best way to put it is the relationship between the thoughts and the uh, perceptions. Because we only can have thoughts that come from our perceptions, that limits the scope of our thoughts. He says that usually when we think about thoughts and imagination, we Im- we imagine, we believe, we think, ah, this is about the most unbounded thing in human experience is our imagination, because we can imagine anything. It doesn't have to be real, doesn't have to be something we've experienced, etc., etc. And his contention is that this is not actually the case, because all of our ideas either are simple and thus reflect some perception or impression that we had at some point, or we combined various ideas, various simple ideas, which, again, are always coming straight out of our experience, experience being a catch-all term for these impressions and perceptions and the sort of creation of them. In any case, our imaginations and our thoughts are limited much more than we think they are because all of this supposed freedom is actually just compounding simple ideas which we get only from experience. The classic examples are mythological creatures where you have things like griffins or unicorns or whatnot, where you took three or four animals and you put them together in interesting ways and, oh, voila, a new beast. Yeah, he seems to have this in common with Locke. And Descartes also, yeah. Which which we talked about when we talked about Locke, that unicorns are just narwhals. Narwhal horses. That you put on, yeah, so... Although, and we talked about how that does make some sense, right? How can it you does. imagine yeah. a thing that you've never, you don't have any kind of experience of, right? Although um, for Locke, that's one thing. For Descartes, he has a much more optimistic idea of the powers of human reason. So you can have ideas of things for him that you have no experience of. Whereas for Hume, that's qu- quite the opposite. All of the things that reason can do, and for Hume, reason, what can reason do? It can mess with ideas, basically. It's a way of organizing ideas. Ideas are limited to experiences, and experiences are going to be limited because the human being is limited. You can come up with a story about life on Mars, but all of the things that we talk about on Mars are just adaptations of life on Earth. With a slightly redder palette. Yeah, exactly. You put on your not exactly rose-colored glasses and voila, you're on Mars. You and I earlier, for unrelated reasons, were talking about Eldritch Horror, (laughs) uh, which I'm interested in recently. But when you think about that sort of Lovecraftian Cthulhu, those sorts of things, what are all the images? The images are of like, Mm -hmm. right? We are familiar as much as those stories are about things that we couldn't possibly comprehend. All of the imagery at least as it gets popularly depicted is all stuff that we can comprehend Mm -hmm. right but that we find very alien because it's from such a different environment yeah so you have you have octopi which are like a deep sea or squid which are very deep sea kind Mm -hmm. of creatures so we don't have experience of those things and having that kind of picture those parts of things yeah 
inform the design of these creatures makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And it's interesting with that, too, is that when those people, Lovecraft, etc., describe stuff that they are trying to elicit from their readers, that feeling of disorientation or horror or whatever, they almost inevitably stop describing the thing in terms of what it is or sounds like or looks like, and they start describing the situation in terms of how the protagonists are right. feeling, right. because we can identify with that. Yeah. And maybe you get something like, here's a basic description, and beyond that, it's indescribable, words can't do it, but this is how the guy felt when he right. saw it and heard it, and you're like, oh man, I can't imagine what right. that is. And so the only way you can appeal to something totally alien is by combining things that aren't alien in a way to evoke a vicarious experience or something. Right. So this is another way where, to bring it back to Hume, like for Hume, those emotions, yeah. those gut feelings, those are also perceptions. Right. The author is appealing to our imagination for various, at this point, we're into the realms of thoughts and out of perceptions because right. it's all imagination, right? But all of these different thoughts of different sorts to combine instead of just, here's what four animals look like. It's here's two animals and a person, what they look like, plus how you feel in these three situations. Right. And then you put all that together, but it's still a big combination of ideas, yeah. very cleverly done right. to evoke an actual perception, which is to say a gut reaction from us, right. an actual emotional reaction from us. And it us. does seem like part of what's working there is you're working with very instinctual kinds of fears, mm -hmm. right? Insofar as we are animals, there are things that are like terrifying, right? Yeah. One of the things that I think is the most terrifying predator for me is not a big cat or a bear. It would be a horrible experience to encounter <laughs> one of those. But one of the things that just it doesn't keep me up at night, but I think, oh, that's really scary, is just thinking about being in the ocean with an animal that's meant to be in the ocean. Mm -hmm. And that can that all of its equipment to navigate the world works in water. And I really don't. Yes. Particularly if it's large, but it moves very quickly. All of that. It's where our terror of sharks and giant squid comes from is just how do you get away from this thing? And that those are harping on very deep understandings of my ability to move in water and my ability to navigate when I'm having to try to breathe and mm -hmm. swim and all of that stuff. And so there is some sort of appeal to not only all of these images that are evoking motions, but it seems like the kind of closer to your gut level mm -hmm. <laughs> that you can get those emotions, the more, we use the word visceral to yeah. describe that, right? All right. Hume has this conception that we are limited by our perceptions or what he called impressions and our thoughts or ideas. And that when we are using reason or when we are imagining, we are combining different ideas that we have had that we had to have some kind of experience of in the past in order to create those. And it's interesting. One of the things, and I'm sure we'll talk about this more later, but one of the possible ways that you can relate ideas, I already mentioned once, but is cause and effect. For Hume, this relationship is not a relationship that one can, can come to through deductive reasoning. 
It's not the sort of thing that you can say, I see X happening, therefore I know Y must happen. This is not a logical thing that you can just know um, a priori, which is to say before you run into any things in the world. He also doesn't think it's something that you can know just by the perceptions. Because you can eat bread, you can see it and smell it and have lots of perceptions about the bread. And you can feel it in your stomach, you know, being nice and full. But there is no perception of the connection between those two things. The closest you're going to get is like the perception of swallowing, but that's the wrong kind of connection. And he takes this to be the case for all relations of cause and effect, where we have the idea, another of his famous, probably the most famous example is the billiard ball. You think of a, a pool table and somebody takes a shot and the one ball rolls across the table and hits the other ball and the other ball that carries on and goes into the pocket, hopefully, or bounces around, creates havoc, and people are unhappy to take that example. He says, seeing the one ball hit the other ball there's nothing in the nature like if you sat there and studied the balls and you're like oh what's going on here what's what color is it what does it look like how heavy is it what is it doing there is nothing to tell you what the effect of the first ball hitting the second ball is in those two individual pool balls right there's nothing about a pool ball that will tell you that and his point is human understanding automatically does this cause and effect thing, even though we don't get it through reason and we don't get it through perception. Where do we get it from? He takes his time to get there a little bit, but he ends up eventually saying, and I've mentioned this before, saying that this is basically a human instinct. Now, to elaborate on that a little bit, this instinct doesn't kick in immediately. It's not like we see something happen and we're like, aha, I understand it now. This will always happen. No. He says what drives this is what he calls habit or custom. And we might say one becomes accustomed to seeing a certain combination of events and then comes to expect it. He says, if we could tell just from the first time that the one ball hit the other ball that it was always going to do, that would tell us that this is actually something based in reason. Because in deductive proofs, you just have to prove it one time and it'll always be the right. It's always going to be the same. He says, but that's not how we do it. We see it happen over and over again and we go, ah, cause and effect. I get it. There's some finicky stuff here. Human understanding. What do we understand? We can understand ideas. We can understand perceptions. These are two objects of understanding. But there's something that seems to be outside the realm of human understanding, and yet we still know it. Or maybe we don't know it. We believe it is probably the better way to put it. We We still We grasp it. We take it on as a belief. And that is something like cause and effect. That's the, the prime example. So one of the ways... To go back to the limitations on human understanding, one of the ways that human understanding is limited is that there are things that people in general think that they understand. And Hume is saying, actually, we don't understand those. We believe them, but we don't have the same basis to believe them as we do things like logical proofs, things like geometry, which are just about the relations of ideas and not about uh, perceptions. And things that have to do with matters of fact, real life and existence. I think an example of something that's like this, that is a physical example that may help. It might not help some people. I grew up playing um, baseball a lot Mm -hmm. and 
how a baseball, you have to learn how it works, but I'd been playing baseball for so long that how spheres move mm-hmm. at speed and how they're going to react with the ground and things like that felt very predictable. Basketballs, they're bouncier. They have a different weight than baseballs. But when you throw a basketball and it hits the ground, there's a certain curve to a bounce mm-hmm. of a ball predictable. And that's totally different from when a football hits the ground. <laughs> yes. Now, if you have a lot of experience with a football or a rugby ball, balls that are more lemon-shaped mm-hmm. than spherical, you mm-hmm. can get to where it can bounce and you can catch it instantly in the same way with a baseball. But all of the time that I spent with a baseball did not prepare me for how a football or a rugby ball moves. Mm-hmm. And then you actually just have to have kind of that instinct kick in, mm-hmm. as it were. And you might say your body understands mm-hmm. how this thing is going to move if, yeah. you're, if you're doing some task like trying to catch it. Or something yeah, like yeah. And this is one of the interesting things, it's sort of a distinction to make between being able to describe the forces at work in a situation like that. So, you know, take a physicist who learns the right things, runs the right equations, they can describe what's happening. And if you released the ball and then froze time, they could run the equations and pop up, oh, this is what it's going to do. But the human mind does that without any of the equations. It just skips that step because it has been habituated or accustomed to the way that the ball will react to hitting the ground. Hume's point is that what's happening there is not, again, not something we grasp through reason and not something we grasp through direct perception of objects in the world, because the relation of cause and effect is not an object in the world. It's a way that we put ideas together in our minds. It seems clear to me that he is convinced that cause and effect is a real relation. It accurately describes things in the world. What he, what he doesn't think is that we get to it in the ways that the people who disagree with him, the way they think you get to it. So let me put a pin in that. Sounds that good. That's your interpretation that it is that he thinks it's a real relation. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll come back and talk about maybe a different way to interpret human just a second. But I want to offer another example that's keying off of this idea. Mm. One of the things that. I think more people might be familiar with than different kinds of ball sports is in movies, you will have an exterior shot of a building and then the cut will imply now we're inside the building Mm -hmm. and your brain just goes, oh yeah, that's what's happening. Mm -hmm. Part of that is because you're habituated to movies, Mm -hmm. and maybe if you'd never seen a movie in your life, you wouldn't know how to do that Mm -hmm. interpretive jump, but we have enough experience with movies that make that jump. More often than not, the set where the actors then do the scene inside of the building is nowhere near the exterior of that building, right? right? They get the footage of the outside of the building and they just cut that together with all of the acting that's done on a soundstage, which Mm -hmm. could be across the country or across the world, wherever. And it's easy to believe if you don't think about the fact that people are making a movie Mm -hmm. that, 
oh, that room is inside of that building. Mm -hmm. And so if you went to, say, the Empire State Building, for instance, and went inside expecting to see some room that was depicted in a movie, you might that room might not exist there. Mm -hmm. And you might be flabbergasted to be like, oh. And so yeah, that that's a connection that we're wanting to make. Mm-hmm. Hume doesn't have experience with movies, but the idea of the billiard ball is the same sort of thing. We want these things to connect up in a way that they don't necessarily. So let's move then to talk about a different interpretation than what you're offering. Because what you've offered is the interpretation of Hume believes that he really thinks that cause and effect is real. Mm-hmm. And that what he's trying to point out is that you don't get to cause and effect through reasoning or Mm -hmm. through understanding. You come at it with some other process that's more instinctive. Yeah. One of the results of this is that we can't know with certainty anything that is downstream from that. It's only probabilistic. You see some the same thing happen, X happening and then Y happening, and you think, ah, cause and effect. You see it happen a thousand times that same way. His point is you can never be sure that the next time it's going to happen. It just gets more and more and more unlikely that something different will happen. Right. Just probably you get probabilistic stuff, whereas in purely rational stuff, you can have absolute certainty right it's just he doesn't think that's where anything interesting happens it's interesting to start talking about in this context to talk about things probabilistically because calculating probability is a reasoning mm-hmm. it's like a mathematical yeah. if exercise. you do yeah if you do the actual calculations but part of hume's point is you're not doing that exactly you're not thinking about it no. as a probability no you just are acting how you're doing how yeah. you're doing yeah and you'll be surprised but you may be able to go Oh, I guess I missed, I didn't understand quite what was going and make the right connection there Mm -hmm. where I might have otherwise. So one of the ways that Hume is often interpreted, and in fact, there are faculty at Gutenberg that interpret Hume in this way, is that Hume doesn't believe that cause and effect are real. And so illustrations that he's using are an attempt to show that the connections that you're making between X happening and Y happening are dubious. That you make those connections, but there isn't anything scientific about that. And that's the point of Hume, is to point out how, ultimately, how very little is scientific in this Enlightenment era. One example I've used to illustrate that is let's go back to that picture of the cue ball hitting, let's say, the eight ball Mm. to make it easy. You could imagine having a coffee table book that had very nice photography in it. And in one picture, you have the lineup between the cue ball and the eight ball. You have the person playing pool lining up a shot from the cue to hit the eight ball. And then you would turn the page and there'd be a picture of the cue ball touching the eight ball. Mm-hmm. And maybe it'd even be blurry because you caught it right as contact was being made or whatever. And then on the next page, you have the eight ball moving away from the cue ball and going into the pocket. And if you're just flipping back and forth, you can see 
oh, this followed this followed this. But then you might look in the corner and it gives the attributions of when these pictures were taken. And you realize, oh, these are from three different pool games. Mm -hmm. And so I instinctually want to connect the story Mm -hmm. of the cue ball hitting the eight ball and the eight ball going in the pocket. But that's not necessarily the case Mm -hmm. because there's an example of where it might appear to be the case. But in fact, they're not related events Mm -hmm. in this coffee book. What are things that you think about as, because you're familiar with this particular way of interpreting, it's a very popular way of interpreting Hume. What are the things that you are taking into account as you have decided to interpret Hume in really believing that cause and effect are real relationships, but that we just don't get there through reason? There's a couple things. I think the basic one is that I think Hume's project is epistemological rather than metaphysical. So I think he's talking about, I mean, it says it in the title, human understanding, but that's not a... Dispositive. No, because like people entitle things funny (laughs) all the time. But like, I'm just trying to say, I'm not being obtuse here and being like, oh, he says it says this. No, In reading the inquiry, it does seem to me that his project is epistemological in nature. He wants to know about what we can know and how we can know it and that sort of thing. I don't think he's interested primarily, at least in this works, in the metaphysics of whether cause and effect happens. Maybe I shouldn't say he's not interested. That's not what he's describing. He's describing how do our minds get in touch with stuff that's out there we all act as though and and believe that certain things cause other things. This is just basic part of how we interact with the world. How does that fit? How does this belief, and he goes into some detail about belief, how does this belief fit into our knowledge? Now, if you're going to read Hume as denying cause and effect as a thing, if you will, then you're going to have to read him as at least for those sections, being interested in a metaphysical question. And I am by no stretch of the imagination a Hume scholar, but I don't see that when I read him. I see him doing epistemology, not metaphysics. And I I don't know that it would be too terribly difficult to persuade me otherwise if someone sat me down and showed me passages or whatever, but I haven't seen that. The second reason that I take him to believe that cause and effect is actually a real relation. It's tricky with these terms, a real relation. It's obviously a relation of ideas. The question, is it a relation among physical objects? The trick with that is he doesn't think those relations have some sort of existence in the way that the physical objects do. So even saying it's a real relation is super ambiguous and hard to know what he's getting at. He makes a point of saying that even infants and animals learn from experience in a way that is attributable to grasping cause and effect, not intellectually, but simply as a way of sorting through how the world is and acting within it. And he says infants and animals don't have reason. So how are they grasping this thing? They're grasping it through instinct. And if it's not an artifact somehow fabricated by our reason, that's another reason to think that it's something in the world somehow and graspable. And 
another related piece that I just thought of is that he is trying to do with human nature what he thinks Newton did with astronomy. He wants to find the underlying invisible laws of human nature as opposed to the laws of nature. And he says that he is looking for these principles or laws which do not have the same kind of existence as billiard balls and loaves of bread, things in the world, right? But they have some kind of existence. And he's very much enamored of Newton and Boyle and some others, but especially Newton and the way that he was able to find these principles and laws of nature, which are not things that one can perceive, nor are they things that one can reason to, but they have to be found somehow. And once one finds them, they have great explanatory power. And I think that when he talks about this, about cause and effect, it's not quite the same thing. But I think it's in the same category of something that is effective or effectual and yet has not the same kind of reality as, again, billiard balls or ducks. And and I know we're going to talk about this later, but I think I think he is enough. He has enough of a kind of continental flavor and quick background for people. Philosophy gets often divided into continental and analytic, especially in the last hundred years, it goes back a little earlier, but analytical philosophy tends to find its home in the UK and the US and is all about breaking things down into smaller pieces, breaking an idea down into all of its parts, understanding each of its parts, and then seeing how they fit together. Whereas continental philosophy, the continent of Europe, that's where continental comes from, is much more about narrative and analogy, and that sort of thing. When you read Hume as if he is purely in the analytic tradition, he sounds a bit muddled and imprecise and confusing, maybe frustrating. But if you think about him a little bit as a kind of a hybrid between the analytic and the continental tradition, which he isn't, he predates that distinction, and he also lives in Scotland, but the way he writes feels to me not as analytic as a lot of the Britons who were writing at the same time and a little bit more on the evocative and I want you to feel a certain way when I write these words. I want a flavor in my words and not just the crisp definitional denotation sort of thing. But he's not. it's not like he's Nietzsche either. He isn't all excited and emotive and grand this and, and that aphorisms yeah he's not aphoristic so from my perspective the way to read him is a little bit more backing off of the analytic a little bit and i think part of what goes into an interpretation that takes him to not believe in cause and effect as a real relation so to speak is reading him extremely analytically. yeah exactly he's trying to make his definitions be very precise and very clean when, in your view, they just aren't. Mm -hmm. I tend to agree with your perspective on how to take Hume. I remember back in the day when we were reading Hume at Gutenberg, I remember somebody in my class was arguing against that very analytical way of taking him and pleading for something to be more evocative 
and we ganged up on them and were very mean to them. But as I have gotten older and hopefully wiser and interacted with more of Hume's biography and some of his story and seen more of his project, particularly because I'm interested in English history, I have come to believe that the questions he's interested in dealing with are historical ones. Because if you believe that human beings are sometimes rationalizing why they do things rather than reasoning through why they do things, that's going to have a big impact on the way that you think about history. Right? Mm-hmm. If people are doing things for motives that are unknown even to themselves sometimes, that's going to have a big effect on how you tell the story. And I think there's a good case to be made that because Hume's history was so influential, that he was one of the voices that went into the Founding Fathers, for instance, as they were looking at building the Constitution and things of that nature and going, we can't really trust humans to just be rational, (laughs) moral, perfectly moral people. Is it Madison who has that line about if men were angels, we wouldn't need government. Mm. And Hume has a very similar picture of things. It's sort of like, yeah, human beings are out for their own devices, and you can be careful about that. And so I think when he's talking about his the issues that he wants to talk about, I think are very related to those sorts of issues. And so I tend to think of him more being maybe a great historian and more of a mediocre philosopher, <laughs> and his concerns being oriented towards the kinds of things that he's been convinced of by how he does history rather than vice versa rather than thinking from the philosophy of that form his history i think on a final note here i think it's worth talking about the difference between an author's meaning and an author's significance those are terms from edie hirsch who wrote a book called validity and interpretation And the difference that Hirsch makes between an author's meaning and an author's significance is the meaning is what David Hume meant to say when he wrote this book. And part of what we believe here at Gutenberg and what we're trying to teach students is how are the words and how the authors are putting ideas together, how are those things helping us understand what they meant by something. Whereas the significance is how those ideas went out into the world and then people thought thoughts about those ideas and maybe they weren't quite the same ideas Mm -hmm. and then did stuff in response. Because Hume is very much an example where that's the case. We've been talking during this episode about how Hume really does think that cause and effect is a real relationship as we've been describing it. But there's been a great tradition in Western civilization of interpreting him as not believing that cause and effect are a real relationship. And a lot of philosophy has been written in response to that idea. And in fact, has been, I would say, pretty productive. How should we think about that? How should we think about differences in interpretation and what that means for us trying to be charitable readers and the pursuit of truth. 
Hmm. Small um, question. I yeah, know. I was going to say, that's quick and easy. I'll, yes or no question? Yeah. I guess there's a couple areas in which our spheres where the answer to that is going to be a little different and relevant. One is the question of whether you're studying the ideas themselves or the history of the ideas, mm-hmm. right? So one way of negotiating the split between the meaning and significance is to just be really clear that there are two things. And that's fairly straightforward as far as it goes. It's not always easy to disentangle the significance from the meaning if you've been taught the thing by somebody else because they will have their own ideas about both of those things and they may have them all wrapped up in each other to the extent that you think what you're getting is the meaning, but you also have the significance packed in there with it. Okay, fine. You disambiguate, you disentangle, you get them apart, you look at each of them, that's its own thing. Another question is within the history of ideas, picking up other people who've interacted with Hume and you have two ways to look at them as well. One is to assess them as interpreters of Hume and agree or disagree or take on board the way they're thinking about it to see if it's a better way of thinking about it than what you're doing. But then the other, of course, is that whatever thinking they are doing is its own set of thoughts and is worth interacting with on its own merits. One thing not to do is to look at somebody and be like, oh, they completely misread Hume. And even assuming you're right, you can't conclude from that that they're not that their ideas are not worth interacting with. Because you can be dreadfully mistaken about your reading of somebody and yet have really good things to say or interesting things to say in response. Some of the really interesting things that people have written have been written in complete misunderstanding of what they're interacting with. Right. And I think this is part of the grace of Christendom, Mm -hmm. right? Because one of the reasons we're so focused on how do you interpret this stuff and how do you disentangle this stuff is when it comes to reading the Bible, how do we sort these issues out? Mm -hmm. And we come from maybe not even a singular culture, but our culture informs us about the significance of the Bible. Mm -hmm. And my experience of becoming a better and better reader is the significance of the letters of Paul and the meaning of the letters of Paul. Those seem to separate from each other. Yes. Or at least get more complicated as things go on. And there are writers within Christendom attempting to talk about what Christianity is, trying to offer wisdom and guidance, who will approach a particular passage or something of that nature, and they may still have worthwhile things to say, Mm -hmm. even if, as I look at their interpretation of a particular passage... I might think that's not what that passage is about at all. Mm -hmm. Being able to disentangle those two different things, both the meaning and the significance, but also the difference between somebody as interpreter of something Mm -hmm. and their own thoughts does seem to be a really important uh, thing to realize you're dealing with as Mm -hmm. you're working with these books that have influenced where we are now. Mm Mm-hmm. 
Naomi, do you think there's anything else that we need to talk about with regard to Hume and the inquiry? Or any other tidbits that you think are worth adding, maybe not directly relevant to this project per se, but that might be helpful to folks as they're thinking about David Hume and what he's up to. He has this interesting bit when he's talking about those combinations of ideas. Mm -hmm. He thinks that there's this exception, which is what gets dubbed the missing shade of blue. Mm -hmm. So he's think about all the shades of blue that you can think of. Now, there's got to be a shade of blue that you can't think of, because why not? You haven't seen it before. So you can't come up with the idea of the shade of blue because you haven't seen the shade of blue before. Huh, that's weird. And yet, if you think about it, you probably could come up with it. Now, how is it that you've come up with a simple idea? Because you remember, his simple ideas are all supposed to come out of simple perceptions. How can you get this simple idea of a shade of blue if you've never had the perception of it? This is a bit of a conundrum for me. It's the exception. It's weird, but it's there's only one of these, so whatever. It doesn't matter. <laughs> you can see him being like, yeah, there's a shade of whatever. It, this is the only exception I can think of. It doesn't seem like it's super relevant. And of course, when we were discussing this in class, the students are all like, all you do is you take a shade of blue and you add dark to it or you add light to it. Uh -huh. And it's a compound idea. It's not a simple <laughs> idea. And so we got talking about, I wonder if this is just a difference in color theory. Uh -huh. Maybe color theory, as Hume understood it, was not the sort of thing where you mixed those and you got something else. It just was a simple thing, which there were painters who mixed paints, so I'm not sure why he would have thought that. It's just, it was just one of these interesting little tidbits yeah. where he thought there was this really bizarre exception to his rule. Yeah. But in our way of thinking, there's no reason to think of it as an exception. Yeah. So this is just one of those places where you have an interesting artifact of mm -hmm. the work, maybe of the time. Or maybe of the, this particular person. Yeah, or maybe it was just Hume, where he thought there was something that didn't work in his system, and we're like, oh, it works fine. <laughs> Which makes that a little bit more understandable when people think that something, that's obvious that something works, that it does work in their system, and we're like, what? It doesn't work. What are you doing? Like there, there are things that we're just blind to. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Um, man, that's crazy. That's a crazy thing for freshmen to talk about. Like, yeah, oh, it's just... just the same thing. Oh, man. Hopefully, this conversation has been helpful to everybody who's been listening. If you have comments or questions, you can email us at podcasts at gutenberg.edu. Thanks, Naomi, for coming on and talking about David Hume. My pleasure. And we will be back in a little while to talk about more books and ideas which influence Western civilization through the curriculum of Gutenberg College.